Welcome to the Talent Talks podcast from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I'm Alan Caesar. My guest today is Mark L. Berry, who's joining us today from his home in Naples, Florida. He's been a pilot with American Airlines since they bought TWA, which is the carrier he started flying with more than three decades ago. He's also an author. His articles have been published in Airways Magazine, and he has also written fiction and nonfiction books. He earned a bachelor's degree in aeronautical science from Embry-Riddle in 1985, and also has a master's in creative writing from Fairfield University. Mark, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great. All right. So after graduation, your first piloting job was island hopping in the Caribbean. Um, it sounds kind of unglamorous, but also probably a lot of fun. It was kind of funny because I went straight through school, straight through the summers, three summers in a row. And the advantage of at Embry-Riddle as a student is during the summer, there's all the extra planes and instructors. You can fly all you want. But at the end, when I became an instructor, it was the opposite problem. And there was no real work to do during the summer. So I took my first vacation in three years and I decided to look for an airline job and quickly decided that I was too low time for anywhere in the continental U.S. And the options seemed like either Alaska or the Caribbean. So I went and followed the sun. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the funny story is I banged on doors and uh, had no success until a friend of a friend let me stay at his girlfriend's house. <laughs> so it was like the most extended invitation ever. And she got tired of me hanging around. <laughs> so she, she worked for Eastern Metro Express and she called her boss and said, give this guy a slot in the next ground school to get him off of my couch. <laughs> That's a pretty good, uh, pretty good way to work yourself in there. So you're you're flying twin otters, which I understand are like 19 passenger planes. Uh, and so what do you like? Are you flying politicians or tourists? What's the market? Who are you flying? That was the very beginning of the dual designated carrier. So we were flying Eastern Airlines passengers from the different islands into San Juan to connect with their hub, and then they would fly them onto the mainland. So nowadays you have the, all the Eagles and, and Express Jets and all that type of stuff. But back then it was one of the very first dual designated carriers. We were a feeder. Okay. It must have been gorgeous to fly around the Caribbean. Did you have any f favorite stops? Uh, it was beautiful. There's some private islands and uh, uh, that I've flown over that I'll probably never get to visit. But from a thousand feet in the air, <laughs> they're absolutely amazing. But yeah, we mostly did St. Thomas, St. Croix, and San Juan, and then we branched out to St. Martin and different cities in Puerto Rico. And then eventually at the end, we we're doing a little bit of Dominican Republic. Okay. So you flew a, a twin otter, which I understand is capable of short takeoffs and landings. Did you take advantage of that capability or were you was, using real runways? It was pretty funny. One place I didn't mention is we flew into the British Virgin Islands and Tortola is a real airport, but we used to fly into Virgin Gorda. And it looks like 3,000 feet of crushed shell beach. And the first time I went in there, the captain flew overhead and said, take a look and see if there's any traffic on the runway. And I said, what runway? He said, oh, you haven't been here before? You're, you're in for a treat. <laughs> and right up until we flared, I thought he was pulling my leg. We weren't really going to land on the beach. Wow. That's wild. That's wild. You pull, you pull up to the end and there's this tiny little shack. And on the wall are neckties that have been cut off by of anybody who dared wear a necktie to the Caribbean. And then there's like one little counter and one guy and he's the customs and immigration. You fill out a form and, and then you're, you're on a tropical island. That's hilarious. 
Uh, so you were hired by TWA not long after that, and you were based in Berlin, uh, which was is still in East Germany at the time. Or were you in West? I'm sorry, I got my uh, I got it mixed up. You were you were in East Germany. Well, oh, West uh, Berlin was a divided city, that's right. and it was the western portion that ended up getting surrounded by the wall that was fully contained within Eastern Germany. And there were three corridors that would go in and out, either by road or by air. So yeah, after Embry-Riddle, I flew Twin Otters for a year, and then I flew for Command Airways, American Eagle, flying the, the box the Twin Otter came in, flying shorts around the Northeast. <laughs> and then I was 22, and TWA hired me. And after training, they shipped me straight over to Berlin. What happened is I got my schedule, and, it, and all my trips began in TXL. And I said, TXL? I know we fly LaGuardia, Kennedy, and Newark. What, do we fly to Teterboro too? And scheduling, <laughs> the scheduler fell out of her chair laughing. She said, Mark, that's Tegel Airport in West Berlin, Germany. I'm like, we go there? She says, we have a base there, and that's where you're going. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, so uh, uh, that section of Berlin being sort of the, the capitalist side in the middle of communist uh, communist half of Germany, was it weird, like, flying over the like, did you notice a difference in when you crossed, you know, sort of the border from the air? Well, it's I was in the back seat. I was the flight engineer, and the and the and I was 22, and the two pilots up front we, we hadn't hired him forever. We're like 58 and 57, looking at this kid in the back seat. So they wouldn't even give me a map. <laughs> <laughs> and if I tried to lean over their shoulders to look out the window, they'd say, "This is pilot stuff. Get back to your engineering." <laughs> But every once in a while, they would point out something cool because we were flying down narrow corridors. We weren't allowed to fly into East Germany without, uh, you know, like a weather emergency or something. And uh, Badger bombers would pull up next to us and fly formation with us just outside of the corridor airspace. And, and it, was, it was very Cold War surreal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's pretty wild. Um, uh, your 90-day checkride experience is also a pretty wild thing. You want to tell me that story? Well, the, nick the nickname of the 727 is the pig ship because it's basically if pigs could fly, that would be the aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big, heavy airplane. It's fast, but it goes up like a safe, comes down like a safe. That's why we call it a safe airplane. <laughs> <laughs> but 90-day uh, check ride, they have a you know, how's it going check ride. And the check engineer showed up with a pig nose strapped to his face and said, I'm here to give you a check ride. And I was like, really? <laughs> totally surprised. I didn't think anybody could reach out to me and in Europe. But of course, that was an opportunity for him to go over there. And uh, of course, it couldn't be a routine flight. That would be too easy. So we had the windshield overheated. And uh, there's a front windshield and a side windshield in the 727 uh, for each the pilot and the co-pilot. And the side windshield was just bubbling. Air bubbles were getting growing and some of them grew to the side of size of golf balls. And it looked like it was going to explode at any second. And I reached up and on the, these were 100 series 727s and almost all of our planes were 200. And only because I had just come out of training, I remembered, hey, that windshield's one of the differences between the two airplanes. So I turned off the first officer's windshield switch, which gets his forward windshield, but also gets the captain's side one. And the check engineer said, no, it's the wrong one. And he switched them. And I'm like, okay, we'll get to it in the checklist and I'll fix it. When I got to the checklist, it just said, turn off affected windshield switch, and it doesn't tell you which one. So again, I went and switched the other one off. Meanwhile, the captain's yelling, his air is burning. He's like, get Paris dispatch on the phone. We're diverting and get this heat off of my head. And, and I'm trying to do the job, and the check engineer is undoing what I do. 
but he, you know, he thought he was doing the right thing. And I thought I was doing the right thing. And I was the lowest man on the totem pole. So that windshield switch did not get turned back off until after we landed. And so then I thought for sure, I'm going to get fired. Like everybody thought that I, I wasn't doing my job right. And we had to wait around. And then we had to deadhead on a plane back to Berlin and all the crew set up in first class. And I sat in the back in coach trying to get away from everybody. And uh, in the meantime, the captain did his own homework. He was actually in charge of all of Europe. And he found out that what I was doing was right. And, uh, but he hadn't told me yet. So I tried to go get a beer with a buddy of mine and, and just tell him what happened and try to decompress. And we showed up at, uh, at, a, at the room where a friend of ours was having a party. And there was the check captain and this, his 12-year-old daughter answers the door. And I, we had put on this Turkish outfits that we had got while we were in Istanbul on the trip before, my friend and I. So there we are looking kind of silly in, the, in like purple clothes. <laughs> and she says, hey, dad, is this the guy? Who tried to burn your ears off? I can't. Remember. I have it in the book exactly. What it says. And and uh, basically, she saved my job because he came up and he said, "I looked it up, and and you did have the right switch." And I'm, and he says, "The next time somebody tells you not to do your job, even if it's me, you tell them to go to hell." <laughs> <laughs> and from that moment on, he went from a very stressful situation. He became my like personal mentor. He always would follow up and check in on me and see how my career was going. And um, he had an opportunity. He was a, a training manager. He ferried 727s back and forth to Europe to get them there and back. And he brought me with him on those trips. So my first ocean crossings were in a 727 during the, doing the VHF spruce routes and flying into Gander, Newfoundland at minus 40 degrees. And he, he brought a lot of opportunities my way. Yeah. So you recall this whole scenario, like pretty, uh, you know, pretty jovially. Um, but, you know, having a mechanical or electrical issue on a plane like that has probably be super unsettling at the time. You know, at the moment, I imagine you're trying to like really hard to just fix the situation and get everybody on the ground safely. But what kinds of things do you go through your mind afterward? Well, I have the advantage of looking backwards at it now. Plus, I, I spent a lot of time reviewing it and writing about it. So it's been fully processed. But at the time, it, it was overloading because I was new. I just barely knew my job. It was all training and rote. I didn't have years of experience to draw on. And I was trying to handle the, the overheat. And then we had a diversion to handle. And then I had extra crew members. So now we fly with two pilots, but we had four pilots in the cockpit then. And one of them screaming because his ear is burning. So it was a lot of chaos. And, and I was trying to multitask. <laughs> in a plane that I barely understood at the time. But apparently, luckily, the book work and the training prevailed. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to uh, just jump into this part of it. Um, your fiance, along with one of your mentors, uh, was on TWA Flight 800 when it crashed, uh, taking off from JFK in 1996. Um, you continued to fly for TWA afterwards, which I imagine for any pilot who's had, you know, such a tragic and serious accident at their airline, um, it might be hard to like kind of go back to work right away and to be on the flight deck again. Um, for you, you lost people very close to you and you continued. How long was it until you were flying again? And how did you handle, you know, that knowledge going back to the flight deck? Uh, that's the bulk of the book that I eventually wrote many years later, my memoir, 13,760 feet. Uh, when Suzanne died, I basically lost everything. We were nine days from buying a house together. She died, the house disappeared. 
I was living with her mom and her at the time because we were we had ourselves all staged to move into our new house. So then I was living in her room in her mom's house by myself after that. So it was it was it was uh, difficult. And then I took three weeks off and I thought I have got to do the one thing I have left is my career. And I went back to work. And I was the uh, I was a seven six seven first officer at the time, and we have a we'd take two of those on the the transatlantic flights. We'd have the the normal co-pilot and what we called the eater or the extra co-pilot for because re- it was a, a relief situation. So you, over eight hours, you have to have a relief pilot. So I would I bid that because it was the easiest job, I thought. So I did the whole pre-flight, and I'm sitting in the cockpit, and the captain's loading the flight management computer, and one of our flight attendants, who's um, a lady who had lost two husbands and she she knew grief very well. And she came up and she just gave me this huge hug in the cockpit and said, oh, Mark, I'm so sorry. And started shedding a couple tears. And the captain turned around and said, get off of my trip, pack your bags and leave. And I got thrown off the trip for causing a disturbance of the crew, which just totally crushed me. And I actually was angry with him for many, many years. But with finally, with later with some maturity, which I'm a slow learner, I look back and I realized that we had lost somewhere around 38 crew members and everybody was experiencing grief. So he was probably, he had probably lost people on flight 800 too. And it was all he could do to come to work and having me there, having lost my fiance, just magnified it for him. And so he had to do what he had to do in order to do his job and send me away. But then for me, I felt like, okay, now I don't have my job anymore either. I have nothing left. And that was a long, lot, lot longer road to come back the second time after I tried to fly that one trip. Yeah. Um, and you've, you've said that um, it was something like 10 years later that, you know, your dad and your best friend sort of confronted you about moving forward with your life. What happened in that intervening 10 years for you? And why, why did they feel like it was necessary to have an intervention? Uh, I basically became a wanderer. I, I would go to work, I would fly high time. And on my days off, I just had a crash pad with a bunch of fun roommates, but I would just get back on an airplane and just go somewhere. I went all the way around the world by myself. So, I mean, I guess even when you, <laughs> if you, if you, if you bring the problems with you, even if you go all the way around the world, you don't get away from them. But you know, I went trekking nine days alone in Nepal and uh, I just couldn't, find meaning in the world other than my job. So I did that. And then, and then I wandered and my, my, my dad and my best friend noticed, and they said, you know, you can't do this your whole life. You gotta, you gotta find something that makes you feel alive again. And that's when I ended up, um, you know, I didn't know right off the bat, but I did some soul searching and that's when these characters started popping into my head and, uh, I put them through, I, I killed their best friend in the story. And, uh, and I watched how they did it and, and I didn't know how they were going to do it. And it all just came out of the back of my brain somewhere. So I wrote a survival's guilt novel, which made me feel really good. Like, okay, I'm finally addressing my feelings. And everybody who I knew said, yeah, but, uh, you're hiding behind fiction. And so it took everybody I knew asking me to write my real story. And I still didn't want to do it. <laughs> I took a class. And then uh, to learn, see if I was doing writing, you know, if I could, what else I could learn. And I applied to grad schools for fiction. And the director called me up and said, we want you to come to our MFA class. And, I, and I'm like, great. And he says, for nonfiction. I said, not great. <laughs> and he said, uh, and I said, I, I want to work on a second novel. And he said, no, you sent this one piece that you wrote along with your fiction. that was the story about what happened the night about Flight 800. And we'd like to see you develop that into a memoir. I said, a memoir? 
It's only two kinds of people write memoirs, celebrities and narcissists, and I'm not famous. <laughs> he said, no, people with a story to tell write memoirs, and we'll teach you how to do it. And I said, everybody's been telling me to do it, and I haven't wanted to do it. And he said, well, maybe it's time for you to listen to them. And so I made him a deal. I said, I'll come for one semester and I'll, uh, for nonfiction, and if I don't like it, you'll let me finish my second novel and switch to fiction. He said, deal. Well, in that first semester, I wrote Pig Ship Probation, the story that you asked me about, about going, getting hired and shipped straight over into the Middle East, Berlin, not knowing what's going on, and then getting the, uh, the pig nose um, check ride. And Airways Magazine picked it up, and they, gave me, they asked if I had any photos. And I said, photos? I'm a photo nut. I carried a little instant camera. I developed, it was the film days. Nobody had cameras, uh, had camera phones. But I have 26 photo albums, so I overwhelmed them with pictures. And he gave me a nine-page spread, which I never, in 28 articles, I was never able to repeat. But uh, so I showed the nine-page article to the director of the MFA program. And he says, I guess you're sticking with nonfiction, aren't you? They <laughs> <laughs> said, so well, I got to write. They, they want to see what I write as I write it. So I guess I am. There you go. Um, so why were you so stuck on doing fiction at first? Because I didn't really want to address losing Suzanne and my airline. Like you said earlier, it was hard for me to get up and go to work and feel like I was doing the right thing. And, and I love my career and I didn't want to put it in jeopardy. And I thought that writing about it might stir up the emotions. It might bring too much attention to what happened to me. I was kind of like quietly flying and living my own life under the radar. And that made everything very public. So I'm, I'm wondering, as, as a writer for you, when, when you wrote these books, was, is it a therapeutic act of putting thought to paper? Or did you just put it, you know, did you just sort of put it down and the organizing of the thoughts help you? Or was it an act of like getting the story out of, out of you? It's it, it's a lot of that latter. Uh, I wrote the first novel. I uh, was exploring, you know, survivor's guilt and grief, and basically, you know, taking the cap off the the the, the bottle, letting the genie out. And uh, but writing the actual memoir and dealing with the real people and the real events, uh, I did that absolutely for me. I think that's that was the answer to what my dad and my best friend asked. You said you have to find a way to address this, and I think the only way to address fears or or strong emotions is to eventually tackle them straight on. I went through a lot of counseling after Flight 800. They they made me go see the company psychiatrist to get cleared for work after I got thrown off the trip. And you know that's probably as much uh, them wanting to help me as also like a legal thing. Like we have to make sure everybody's fit to fly. That was before psychological profiling of pilots and stuff like the German wings guy that shouldn't have been flying. That was way before any of that happened, but still they made the effort. And then they gave me through special health services, a counselor to talk to, to just try to work through my feelings and, and, you know, address going to work in airplanes that, that blew up and killed people I loved. And, um, when I got down to writing the memoir, it was kind of like, so one of the counselors, the reason why I said that is one of the counselors told me feelings you bury, you bury alive. So basically for 10 years, I had been just, mm-hmm. they've been just brewing inside of me. And so finally writing about him was, like you said, cathartic. It was, the, it was the goal to try to get my feelings out, put everything on the table and say, okay, this is what happened. This is my life. This is what can't be changed. And, and now with it complete, I can try to move forward. Yeah. So do you feel like that, that story is told and that that part is complete? Yeah, I think that if no one ever read my memoir, I would be still extremely excited that I wrote it because I wrote it for me. And um and then every time someone does write it and they write to me and we talk about it, it feels good because usually people who read it 
they're either interested in commercial aviation or they're dealing with loss themselves. And, and I can relate on either level. So I thought it was really interesting that you pulled a musical thread through your fiction books uh, with songs available on your website that accompany the books. And you continued that when you wrote your memoir. Tell me about how, how you decided to do that in the first place and why you decided to continue that. That started by accident. So my dad and my best friend had challenged me to do some writing. And the first writing I did, I was actually sitting in a, in a gym in a hotel on a layover. And these characters started brewing in my head. I, I was dealing with grief. And I thought there was like two different sides to it. I thought on the one part, it's like, screw it. Life is short, play hard. What's the point? And on the other half, here I was doing all this heavy thinking. And I'm like, I have to make sense of it and, and come to terms with it. And then so that sort of split into two different ways of dealing with grief. So I started giving those characteristics to two different characters. And the female character, Lindy, that I created in my head at first, she was the one trying to address her grief. I, she was a musician. I imagined her as a musician. So she started writing a music album dealing with her grief. So the very first part of the book that I wrote was her songs. I, <laughs> I wrote the lyrics to her songs and the story developed around that. So then that became the way I wrote. I kind of thought lyrically at first, and then I would expand the story around the lyrics. Interesting. Um, are you are you a musician yourself? I wish. I can play a terrible guitar and even worse drums, but I do like to be around people who know how to do it and if they'll you know, suffer through my struggling. But I, do, I joined a group called February Album Writing Month. It's fawm.org online. It's free. And it's musicians from all around the world that every February they collaborate. Everybody tries to write 14 songs in 28 days. And most of the musicians that I met online, they love music and they're not really big words people. They want to do the music part and they just starve for people like me that want to write lyrics. And I like to write lyrics and I like to see songs come to life, but I don't have the musical talent. So it was a good match. I kind of look at it kind of like creating a child, like half of it's from one parent and half of it's from another. And so half of it you're in control of and half of it you don't have any control of. And then you get this third thing, which would be the song or instead of a kid that has its own life. And it's just, it's so much fun to do that. I've created about 80 songs that way. And they've all been recorded by various indie artists. And I just love the way they take my thought and they change it and make it into something I didn't even imagine, but it still has a piece of me in it. Are you still writing? Do you have another book in the works? Uh, I don't, but every once in a while, I uh, I still write an occasional article for Airways Magazine. Kind of what happened is I really fully switched over to nonfiction. I did go back and finish my second novel, but then I found I didn't find fiction as, as satisfying as nonfiction. So I, I've written some articles that are other people's story. I like to be the with author. So I already wrote my story. My memoir is out. And then I look for people that have stories that need telling and co-write it with them. So, um, you know, like I didn't write anything to do with Sully's book. But if you look at Sully's, it's, you know, by Captain Chelsea Sullenberger. And then it'll say with the co-author that helped them write it. I kind of want to be I would love to become one of those people that that the uh, people with a story to tell turn to to help them bring their story to life. That's great. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's a, yeah, the with author is a job. Somebody does that. Yeah, it's not a ghostwriter where you're actually doing it for them. It's, uh, you know, you're helping bring out their story and telling it in the best way, but it's still their story and their words. We'll continue to the lightning round in a moment, but first I'd like to ask our listeners to help us kick off this year's Season of Giving and support Embry-Riddle students in need. 
Giving Tuesday is just a few weeks away. On December 1, the first Tuesday after Thanksgiving, we're raising money for the One University Scholarship. This scholarship supports students from all Embry-Riddle campuses and from any degree or program. We've set a goal of 100 donations from Eagles like you. We need your help to not only make a gift of support, but reach out to your family and friends to also chip in. You can get involved and even make your gift early to be counted. Visit givingto.erau.edu slash gt to find all the ways to get involved. All right, now it's time for our lightning round. Uh, I'm going to give you five questions, and you're going to give me five answers. Uh, Mark, are you ready? Uh, fire when ready. <laughs> fire at will, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you can pilot any plane ever made from anywhere to any destination. What do you choose? Even though I am a Floridian for sure now, and I love the warm weather, I would have loved to have flown a DC-3 like Ernest K. Gann up into Bluey West 1 trying to do a crossing the old-fashioned way with just an NDB, and probably current Embry-Riddle <laughs> students don't even know what an NDB is because they don't even have them in most planes anymore. But uh, if you ever read Fate is the Hunter by Ernest K. Gann, he talks about flying those early crossings. And um, I think the challenge of finding that with almost no navigation in the middle of winter would be probably one of the, uh, short of combat, would be the, one of the most difficult challenges in aviation. All right, so if you could read only one book for the rest of your life, what would it be? Another tough one, because I really love to read new material. There's only a few books that I've read more than once. One of them would have been, or would be uh, Fate is the Hunter by Ernest K. Gann. But I think I'd like to take a token from you instead, and so that I would always know that at one more point in my future, I could read a new book that doesn't exist yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's fair enough. Okay, so who's your favorite cartoon character? Well, if you incorporate comics in as cartoons, everybody who knows me knows I am a diehard Calvin and Hobbes fan. But as far as cartoons go, I think I would put a bid for time with Jessica Rabbit. <laughs> anybody anybody claim time yet? There? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> she's not drawn. She's not bad. She's just drawn that way. <laughs> That's right. I remember that. I remember that. That was, uh, what was it? Who Framed Roger Rabbit, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, well, speaking of which, if we can divert back to the normal interview, uh, you had uh, you got the Clyde Morris seal of approval on your novel, or your yeah, your memoir. Uh, how did you score that? I've known Wes since back in Embry-Riddle. I'm one of the, probably one of the original Clyde Morris readers, and I, I love his stuff, and it shows up on my Facebook feed every day. So uh, he read my book, and he, he voluntarily gave me the Clyde Morris seal of approval. <laughs> that was one of the best endorsements I ever had. Because when you write a book, you hope that people you don't know will, will appreciate it. But when your peers give you a thumbs up and they mean it, that that's probably the most significant kudos a person can get. Yeah. Well, right. Because their, their opinion matters to you, right? Um, yes. Yeah. So uh, picture for me, your, so we're back to the lightning round now. Okay. <laughs> Picture me uh, for me your ideal grilled cheese sandwich. You're about to take a bite out of this thing. What's what's in it? What's it made of? What kind of bread are you using? Give me the whole spiel. That's going to have to be a two-part answer because I've become extremely boring. I read Whole30 and switched mostly to paleo. So bread and cheese are basically not on my diet anymore. Getting old is, is hard. You got you to gotta work, work harder at staying healthy. But once upon a time, I used to love the occasional Swiss tomato on rye for breakfast. Oh, there you go. That's excellent. 
Okay, so if you could live for a week as any person in history, who would it be? Rather than steal a week of somebody else's life, if I had, if you had that kind of magic, I would see if I could let my late fiance come back and live a week as me. And then after she's come and gone, I could see what she did and use what she did as inspiration for the remainder of my life. All right. Well, thanks very much, Mark, for joining us for the Talent Talks podcast. It's an honor to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Talent Talks is a production of Wicked Radio and the Embry-Riddle Office of Philanthropy and Alumni Engagement. We're coming at you from my office at Embry-Riddle in Daytona Beach, Florida, and Mark's home in Naples, Florida. This episode was recorded by me. Edmund Odarte is our program manager. Phil Thompson is executive director of alumni engagement, and Tony Brown is executive director of communications. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our show or suggest a guest to us, we'd love to hear from you. Visit alumni.erau.edu slash podcast and click the feedback link. I promise your message comes directly to me. Thanks for downloading us. We'll see you next time.